And we will continue where we have been. Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to read today verses 1 through 7. This is God's Word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's pray. Father, it's a a sobering passage for us to read. Not only are we reading ancient history, telling us the origins of sin, of the fall, of so many of the ill effects of a damaged world, of a sinful world and a sinful people. Not only are we reading about those long ago and far away things, but we recognize ourselves in this passage. We recognize not just Adam and Eve's sin, not just the temptation of the serpent upon the man and the woman, but we recognize our own sin as well. We recognize the same pattern is followed by the enemy in tempting us, and we all too often fall for it just like the man and the woman did. And so we begin our time this morning by recognizing our sin, by confessing it as sin, as rebellion against you. We recognize that we have fallen far short of your commands, of your expectations, of your standard. We confess that as sin. And though we read about the fall of the man and the woman into sin in this uh, long ago time, we don't blame someone else for our sin because we have happily followed along the same pattern in our own lives. So we confess our sins. And even as we read more about this topic today and discuss some different aspects of this original temptation and fall, we rejoice that even in this chapter, even at the very beginning, even at this darkest moment, there are glimmers of light that you 
indicate to your people that you will not leave them alone and destitute in their sin and in their death, their deadness, their separation from you, that you give hints even here of a Redeemer, of one who will take our shame upon Himself and deal with it, one who will clothe us, one who will finally deal with this enemy, one who will restore a people to a right relationship with you. And so though we start with a heavy heart, we have our eyes looking forward, seeking for those glimmers of light. And we will celebrate that great and shining, glorious light, Jesus, our Savior, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end. So, Father, we ask that in these next few moments we have together that You would be at work by Your Spirit in our hearts, that Christ would be lifted up, that our eyes, that our hearts would be drawn to Him, that we would receive peace, rest, life, hope, and joy in Him. We pray in His name. Amen. We covered the first few verses of this same chapter just last week, and in that time we were focusing on what the tactics of the enemy were like. The, the, the pattern that the serpent used and, and how he was seeking to deceive the woman and trip her up. And so we focused on that uh, last time, and, and uh, we want to cover those same verses again today, but not focusing necessarily on the same aspects, but we want to take a slightly larger chunk today, and we want to look not just at the fall of man, but, but we're also going to see glimmers of the rise of man as well, that... Uh, I've said several times in working through Genesis that the first two chapters are the, the, you know, the glorious pre-fall part where sin has not entered the picture and, and you have this glorious relationship between God and His creation, between God and man, and between the man and the woman even. And, and we saw uh, such wonders there in chapter 1 and chapter 2 in regard to that. And we come to chapter 3 and sin enters the picture. And... And, of course, sin and the aspects of sin and the consequences of sin and, and, and all of that is going to be a major theme throughout the rest of the entire Bible that is going to inform how the story develops all the way through from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the end of Revelation. And so Genesis uh, starts us down this path, introduces the topic of sin, and sin is going to be a, uh, a major a player, as it were, a major aspect of the Christian life and of the development of Scripture itself. And so it can feel a little bit dark to spend so much time focusing, um, even two sermons on basically the same passage here, focusing on sin. I mean, don't we, we all kind of get it anyway, don't we? we? We recognize the sin in our lives, and we certainly recognize the sin in our neighbor's life, right? And, and so we're, we're pretty aware of sin, but uh, there is a lot to learn in this passage, and, and uh, it's my intention to move on in the coming weeks into further aspects of this passage, but there's so much here to learn that I almost feel like we're just 
barely touching the, the mountaintops uh, on this topic. And particularly in the way we're going to see it today, what, what we're going to see develop, we're going to see pictures and glim, glimmers already in this what seems like such a dark chapter that there are aspects of hope. There are hints, whiffs of hope even in this chapter right here. And so I hope you will bear with me as we look through the same uh, passage again. We're going to see some different things pick up. Now, the first thing we want to look at in just verses 1 through 5 is the temptation. And we'll cover that quickly because we spent some time on it uh, last week. But here we have this serpent who is more crafty than, than uh, any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so we should perk up our ears and listen to what this crafty serpent is going to talk like, what he's going to say that's, that's, uh, that's going to be tricky, right? We're, we're alerted already to his character that you really have to listen closely to what this guy says. Because there's, there's going to be a barb in there. There's going to be a, a trick in there. He's going, to, he's going to try and deceive you. He's crafty. And so we listen to his words and pay close attention. And we see that right off the bat, his first question there in the second half of verse 1, did God actually say, right? He already calls into question God's character. We spent some time talking about this last time. But he, he kind of, you know, did, did God really have the audacity to make such a bold statement as that, that you can't eat from any of these trees? Right? He, he's calling into question God's character. He's calling into question really the, the, the generosity of God. The, the picture given is like, did God limit you in such a drastic fashion? I mean, that, that's kind of unrealistic, right? You know, the, God's really stingy. He's not generous at all. He's very stingy. He's calling into question uh, what God's character is like and what God has to say uh, to His people, that God would be so restrictive. That's the nature of His question. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's characterizing God's Word in a particular way. And, of course, we looked at the woman's response last week, and we see uh, that she responds with her understanding of what God's Word was, what the command was, what the prohibition was, and she gives her understanding of that. And, and in that, she had some, some times where she misrepresented uh, God's Word. First of all, she misrepresented the restrictions. Oh, no, he, he said we could eat of the trees, uh, but not that one, and we can't touch it. And God hadn't said anything about touching it. And so there's a, a greater emphasis on the restriction. Remember, God's provision had been abundant. You've got this whole, whole garden. Look at all those trees. Eat from any of them you want. All of them. Except that one, right? God was extremely generous in His provision. But the way she characterizes uh, His Word when she gives it, it really focuses on the restriction. Yeah, but there's that tree that we can't really eat of. And, and God said, yeah, we, we could eat of the trees, but not that one. And if we, if we even touched it, there would be problems, right? So there's a, she, she mischaracterizes the restrictions. She mischaracterizes God's generosity, that He had provided such abundance. Kind of goes unnoticed by her, and the focus is on the restrictions. And then thirdly, she mischaracterizes the consequences. He said we can't eat of that one or, or touch it lest we die. Right? There's, a, there's an outside chance, perhaps. There's a, there's, you know, there's some, there's gonna, there might be a consequence, lest you die, right? When God's Word had actually said, in the day you do that, you will certainly die. 
Dying, you will die. There's a, a great, strong emphasis on the consequences. So she mischaracterizes the consequences. She kind of lessens them, having raised the restrictions and disregarded God's generosity. And so Eve's response kind of gives the enemy opportunity, gives footholds or handholds for the enemy to grab a hold of her, right? And it's at that point that he steps out and says, oh, well, don't worry, you're not going to die. Open contradiction of God's Word. God had said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And here you have the enemy saying, oh, you're not going to die. You will not surely die. But it was because you see a little bit of slippage already in the woman's thinking in that regard. And he characterizes what God had said, characterizes God's, uh, God's own character as, as keeping something good from them. Oh, God knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll become wise. Your eyes will be opened, and, and, and you'll know good, and you'll be like God. And God just wants to keep that from you, see? There's an emphasis that the enemy is giving here that, that, uh, that God is stingy, that God doesn't want to share the abundance, the, 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 the good things. He's keeping something good back from Eve, which entices her, right? So he ends up representing God as kind of petty and selfish. You see how the journey of this conversation has led to a point where God's very character is being called into question, where now God who created all things is petty and selfish. He has some ulterior motive, some agenda that he's trying to keep from the man and the woman. He's trying to keep the good stuff from them, for, keep the good stuff for himself and just let them have that little bit of fruit. Right? God is being characterized in this way. And so that's the essence of the temptation. We went through that last week, and so we don't need to develop it uh, anymore this week, but I want to notice a couple of points of application right here. Even before we move on, just from this part right here, let's seek to know God's Word thoroughly so that when the question comes, the accusation comes, when the mischaracterization of God's Word comes, we can recognize it. We can recognize that God's Word has just been misused has just been mischaracterized. We need to know God's Word and understand it thoroughly so that we can recognize those lies. That's the first point of application. And by the way, that's going to mean you need to read your Bible. You need to study your Bible. You need to be here and be listening and be growing. This is what we seek to do in preaching. We have evening services. Unfortunately, this Tonight's evening service is the last one for the summer, but we have evening services as well for that purpose, to help, help us understand, to develop and understand God's Word so that we can recognize when the lie of the enemy comes. One, one teacher called it the hiss of the serpent, and he would pull that phrase out and you'd be like, oh, now I know exactly what he's talking about. That serpent mischaracterizing God's Word, just a skosh. We need to know God's Word thoroughly. Secondly, second point of application Let's seek to trust God's goodness. It wasn't only God's Word that was called into question. God's own character was called into question. Both in her misrepresentation of God's Word ever so slightly, and in the enemy's use of that to paint God as miserly, that he's, he's unwilling to share, that He's petty, that He's selfish. So we need to trust in God's goodness. One commentator put it this way, commenting on these passages. 
these verses, a thorough knowledge of the Word of God and an unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for spiritual victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are two major weaknesses that we see in this passage, two areas of attack by the enemy. We need to know God's Word thoroughly and trust in His goodness. So that's the temptation, verses 1 through 5 there, and we could have broken that down even further than we did, but we want to move on and look at the second point here of the fall itself. In verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, that's a loaded verse, one verse, and everything just changed. Everything just changed. I want to notice just a couple of things about it here. First of all, you see what the woman did? She begins to toy with the idea. She begins to contemplate further the temptation the thought that has been placed in her mind by the serpent. She begins to, to roll it around in her mind and think about it more. And she sees that it's like this, and she sees that it's like that, and she begins to see it. She's kind of dwelling upon this temptation. And what she should have done is shut it down immediately. She should have recognized immediately, this is a temptation. This is contrary to God's Word, and shut it down immediately. But she didn't do that. She, she dwells on it. She kind of develops the theme of how good this fruit is, how enticing, how beautiful. It's good for food and beautiful to look at. And, oh, and it's, and it's useful to make one wise. And she's thinking about it. All the, all the, she's, she's making a pros and cons list, except there's no cons. Of following after this temptation, she focuses entirely on what she thinks will be the benefits of it. And of course, before we even move on, there's a clear application here. Don't even toy with sin. Don't even let that thought rattle around in your brain. One man said, you, you can't stop the birds flying overhead, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair. Right? And she lets the, the birds of temptation nest in her hair, as it were. She should have recognized them immediately for what they were. She should have expelled them immediately. She should have, have acted and responded immediately from what she knew about God, what she knew about God's Word, and, and rejected the temptation outright. But she toyed with it. And there's that bird landing on her head and building a little bit of nest. That's a great picture. And if, if, if nothing else from this passage goes, you know, goes with you as you go away, the nesting bird in your hair will be a helpful one. And she lets that bird nest. She dwells upon it. She thinks about it. She rolls it over in her mind. And she's, she's pondering uh, th th this tree and the fruit. And she's thinking about, oh, it's good for food. Right? It's physically appealing. You know, I bet it'll taste good. Make me strong. Um, it'll, be, it'll be a nice addition to my diet. You know? She's thinking about it in terms of food. She's thinking about how it's physically appealing. First of all, it's good for food. Second of all, it's beautiful to look at. It's a delight to the eyes. 
right? It's aesthetically appealing. And how could something so beautiful be something God would withhold from us? I mean, come on, right? And so she's thinking about how aesthetically appealing this thing is, and she's thinking about how it is to be desired to make one wise. It's going to have some kind of personal betterment or personal uh, uh, benefit for her. It's going to be spiritually appealing or it's, or it's uh, personally appealing, and so it's going to make her more than she is. It's going to improve her. It's going to give her a leg up. It's going to do something to grow her, to make her better, to make her bigger, to make her something different. She's, it's desired to make one wise. Right? She's creating the, the pros list, and it's a pretty significant list. Tastes good, looks beautiful, and it's going to make me wonderful. Right? That's what she's thinking about in this, in this conversation she's having in her own brain. The aspects of that temptation, the things that she thinks about. I wonder if John was pondering this passage when he wrote 1 John chapter 2. We read this in verses 15 through 17, writing in an entirely different context, but writing about sin. John says in 1 John 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I wonder if John had this passage in mind when he was, when he was pondering the different aspects of the temptation and, and the different things that were so appealing to the woman as she pondered this fruit, recognizing the lust of the flesh, it would be, it, it's, it's good uh, physically in some way. The lust of the eyes is beautiful to look at. It's wonderful. And the pride of life, the, it'll, it'll, it'll better her in some way. And so she ponders those things and she lets them roll around in her brain and she creates the, the pros list and, and things are looking pretty good. So she thinks. And so having been lured by that temptation, she took of the fruit, and she ate. And everything changed. Everything changed. She took of it herself, having pondered all of this, and she takes it down. She had in her mind she was not supposed to touch it, but she took, and then she ate, though God had commanded her not to. And she partook. And so sin enters the world. There is, now, there is now a woman, a, a, an individual who is a sinner for the first time ever amongst humanity. And she takes, and it gets worse. She took and she ate, and she turns and she gives some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. And everything really changed. Where was Adam the whole time? You look for him in, in the previous verses in chapter 3, and he's not there. There's we, you know, and you, plural, and things like that, but never is the man mentioned. Never do we know what he's doing. You know, we kind of wonder if he's off in the South 40, you know, maybe he's on a trip, uh, maybe he's not paying it, to, maybe he's taking a nap. We, we don't really know, but now we find out in this verse 
He's right there with her. Where's he been the whole time? Where's he been mentally, maybe? Well, he hasn't been doing his job. He had a job. He was put in the garden not just to take naps, right? Not just to eat fruit. He was given a a job back in chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. There's an emphasis there on, on developing, nurturing, and protecting. He's to serve in this capacity. He's supposed to do some rounds. He's supposed to make sure that things are working properly. He's to, you know, work on the trees. I don't know what all he was supposed to do, but he was to work it and to keep it. That means protect. Those are, those are words that have to do with like what a priest does in a temple. But there's an aspect there of defending it against uncleanness. Where's he been? Well, he's not been, not been doing his job. And if you remember the order of creation, you have the, the authority structure that God puts in place. That God creates all things and He takes the man and He puts the man in a position of, of dominion. He's kind of like a king over everything. And He's given His wife with whom He is to rule over all things. But the creation order is clear that the instructions are passed from God to the man to the woman. And together they rule over creation. But there is an authority structure inherent in the way things are created. And what do we have happening here? We have a beast of the field, a belly crawler no less, comes into the garden and he goes and talks to the woman. He didn't go to Adam. Went to the woman. He's kind of subverting the authority. He's, he's trying to win her over and then by that means win the man over. And of course, that's exactly what happened. But Adam was asleep at the wheel. He should have seen that snake. He should have run the snake off immediately. He should have cleansed the temple. He should have cleared out that garden from anything unclean, which is that serpent. Should have been removed. And instead, it sneaks in. In the New Testament, talking about this very passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14, has some, some harsh words. It says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, on the one hand, that sounds like that's terribly offensive to the woman. Now, by the way, neither Adam nor Eve are really heroes in this story, are they? They're not really winning the day, Okay. There's enough insult to go around, okay? There's enough blame to go around between the man and the woman. But when you read about this and it says, the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, well, that sounds terribly offensive. But it's much less offensive than what is said of the man. Because he did it, though he was not deceived. She was tricked into it. Some, some, uh, some, some spiritual judo was done on her. Some, uh, you know, the, the, the enemy, you know, kind of uh, mixed her up and, and she ends up being deceived and so she partakes. And the man partook willfully. Which is more insulting, that she was deceived or that he willfully ran into it? There's enough blame to go around. And so the man ends up being the major one responsible in this context. And... Neither one of them is really a hero. 
The result of this, of course, is sin has entered the world, that, that the sin has now become a part of not just an individual woman, but of the entire human race, and remains so to this day because of these actions, because of what we read in these verses. So before we move on to the consequences, I want to notice a point of application here as well. Husbands, don't be passive. Don't be passive. You and I have a calling as gatekeepers in our families. A lot of things have changed. The creation order has not changed, and the man's responsibility in many ways remains unchanged. We are the gatekeepers to our families. We need to be actively engaged in what our family feeds on spiritually, intellectually, culturally, entertainment-wise. That's on us, husbands. And we don't want to be asleep at the wheel like Adam was asleep at the wheel. But you see this pattern uh, perpetuated. You can, you can see it when you read, continue reading through uh, the book of Genesis and you see, uh, you know, here you have Sarah recommending to Abraham later on that, well, we're not having children. It's not really working out. And I know God made this promise. So I tell you what, here, take my handmaid. And Abraham's, okay. He goes along with it, right? And you see that pattern repeated. And of course, we see it in our own lives and we see it in, around us in our culture, and I see it in my own heart. Husbands, we need to stop being passive. We need to take a more active role as gatekeepers. We have a responsibility, and that's fleshed out again and again through Scripture, that, that position that the husband has, that the dad has in the family. And here you see it right off the bat subverted. Maybe I'll preach more on that on Father's Day. That's a good uplifting Father's Day message, right? (laughs) Let's move on to the consequences because they're not good. Look at verse 7. We see what the consequences are. Then the eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes were opened. They did see they did learn something new, and, and in a twisted way, the, the words of the serpent come true. Their eyes are opened, they understand new things, and they don't die physically. And he had said, you're not going to die. And I've, I've heard it suggested that perhaps one of the reasons that the, the husband uh, went along and ate when, uh, when the woman took of the fruit and ate and he was kind of watching to see if she's going to keel over. She didn't keel over, so he ate some too, right? But they didn't die that day, not physically. They continue and we read about uh, the children that they have and how long they live and whatnot. In a twisted way, the enemy's words come true, but their eyes are indeed opened. They gain understanding. They, they begin to understand things they've never understood before. And, of course, the first thing that they understand is, uh-oh, I'm naked, right? That, that, that dream, you know, where you're somewhere public and, and you're, you know, you're just in your underwear or something, that, ter- that happened. And they woke up, as it were, and realized, I don't have clothes on. And what had been fine three minutes ago now is no longer fine. 
would have been fine in that context. Now they realize their nakedness. They become ashamed of their condition. They become ashamed of it. And they try to cover themselves up and they, and, they, and they go and they seek to remove this shame by, you know, making this outfit out of leaves. Their eyes were opened and they saw their new pitiable position and they were ashamed. Devastating. That had never happened before. They had known peace with God. They had known joy and, and, and unity with one another and, and this special relationship with God. And now they just want to cover up. Right away they recognize and they're ashamed of who they are and, and the consequences begin. And I could spell out the consequences for months. And we'll talk about more of the consequences later on in this passage in the upcoming paragraphs, but you see it begin already. Their eyes are open, and they begin to see the world differently. We talked about worldview in our Sunday school class this morning. We're talking about the lens through which we see the world. Well, their lens became shame. They were ashamed of themselves. They were ashamed to be known for who they really were. Sounds like a common problem. Sounds like something that has continued. Their eyes are open. They observe that they're naked, and they're so ashamed that they uh, make uh, loincloths for themselves out of leaves to cover their shame. So that's the beginning of the consequences. The consequences will get worse, and they'll develop, and they'll, they'll, they'll get so dark that we hardly want to read about them. But we have it beginning right there. But I don't want to end today's message on such a dark note, because that, that's a dark note. You know, if, if we ended with a trajectory of, okay, now think about all the consequences of sin, you know, we would all go home weeping, <laughs> depressed, right? And the passage doesn't end there. Our paragraph ends there, and, and it, in many ways it gets worse, but at that same time we see a note of redemption. This is why we've called this the fall and rise of man, because you have these glimmers already of hope. And so I'm going to look at just a couple of other verses in the remainder of just this chapter, which give us a little bit of hope. First of all, we see here that God Himself is going to deal with their enemy. Right? The enemy, the, 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 the enemy starts this chapter, the serpent. We didn't know yet it's a serpent. We figured out pretty quickly. He's more crafty and all that. He comes into the garden, so the, the enemy comes in. Well, we see that the enemy is going to be dealt with. Look at 3.15. We've read this several times in our time in Genesis, and there's, we, we couldn't read it too much. God, speaking to the serpent, says about what he is going to do, the redemption he's going to bring. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Yes, there's an enemy, and he has tripped you up, and sin has entered the world, sin has entered your lives, sin has entered your race because of these two coming from that enemy. But don't worry, I'm going to deal with that enemy. There's going to come a seed of the woman who's going to do battle with the serpent, and he's going to crush the head of that serpent. That enemy will be done away with. So we have the first giving of the gospel right there. We have the beginnings of an understanding that that enemy is going to be dealt with. But there's more. We're familiar with verse 15 of chapter 3 as, as a little glimmer of light in there, but, but, but I saw more light in here. Look at verse 21. 
Remember they, 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 they woke up, and, and, as it were, and they saw that they were naked, and they became ashamed, and they covered themselves with fig leaves, and, and they made this loincloth. And, and in verse 21, we see a glimmer of light, a glimmer of hope. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Not only had he dealt with their enemy or promised that he would deal with their enemy, but he deals with their shame. They had done a terrible job of weaving together some leaves into an outfit. And they wouldn't have been comfortable, wouldn't have been very effective, wouldn't have been very long-lasting. But instead, the Lord God makes for Adam and his wife. God himself makes garments of skins to cover them. And that is rich imagery that we're going to develop at another time. But I want to notice right now that God Himself takes it upon Himself to address their shame. He's going to minister to them, and He, he does so in a small way right now. He gives them, you know, leather clothes, right? Leather clothes are nice, right? Much better than fig leaves and, and covers their, their shame right now. And, and that's a good thing, it's, but, but it's a kind of a temporary fix because the shame isn't just that I needed better clothing, right? The shame is, is, is in here. It's, it's the result of sin in our lives and sin in our hearts. It's a result of the fact that we don't, because of our sin, have access to God like we did. That there's something wrong with us. There's something f- fundamentally wrong with us. No one likes that thought. But it's true. We've been marred at the very base level of who we are. And that gives a, an incredible and a painful kind of shame before one another and before God. We're going to see in, in uh, the next paragraph how God comes on the scene. They run and hide. They don't want to be in His presence. They're, they're ashamed. And He addresses their small s shame immediately by making them garments, which is going to point to a greater dealing with their shame later on, where they will not just be covered up, their shame will be removed. The, the brokenness of relationship between the two of them, and much more importantly, the brokenness of relationship between them and God, and the shame that that causes is going to be addressed, is going to be dealt with, is going to be healed, as it were, in Christ. And so, there's a glimmer of hope when we see that, that Christ is going to deal with their enemy, Christ, the seed of the woman, is going to crush the head of that serpent. We see also that Christ Himself is going to deal with their shame. And thirdly, we see a hint right now of God dealing with their eternal destiny. Look at verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned either way, uh, turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, that sounds like only banishment. It is banishment. But it's not only banishment. He said, He didn't just kick them out because they disobeyed just because. He said, now, verse 22, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, the implication is in this fallen and lost condition. Lest he remain perpetually lost, 
he and all of his offspring remain perpetually lost. Lest that happen, we need to kick him out of the garden right now. We need to put some, some angels there with swords to guard the way so they can't even sneak back in. It's not only God protecting that holy place, though it is certainly that. It's not just wrath and judgment. It's not just that, though it is that. But there's a hint of mercy in here. Lest they take of that tree of life and thus live on perpetually in this damned state. I don't want that to happen, says God. So he kicks them out. And he puts the angels with the sword. And he guards the way so they can't get back in. What's the implication? He's hinting at redemption. He's hinting at the fact that their, their eternal destiny, which seems to be locked in by their disobedience, he's saying, well, there is a way it could be locked in, and I don't want that. So let's remove that option. And he kicks them out. And so, yes, they're lost, and they're sinners, and that relationship with God is broken. But there is a way to be redeemed. There is a way to be restored to that right relationship with God. He's hinting, he's promising it at grace and mercy to come. And he starts right now by, by, by shutting off that option of them being eternally damned because of an event that has happened, and thus eternally damning all of their offspring. This is the mercy of God. He's leaving open the door. It's not developed yet. It's going to be developed through the rest of the Bible, but He's leaving open the door for redemption. That these sinful people, you and I, can be redeemed. Well, that brings us to the Lord's Supper. Take out your elements, and you and I are going to celebrate together these, these slight little glimmers of hope and light found right here in such a dark passage. We're going to celebrate this Jesus who is the one who accomplishes the things promised here. Jesus is the one who finally solves our problems with our enemy and our shame and our eternal destiny. Jesus resolves that. That problem that started in this first dark chapter of the sin story in the Bible, and Jesus is the one who's going to resolve it. That Just as the woman, when she, when she was tempted with that fruit and she made her pros and cons list that lacked an entire con size, and she, she, she thought about it, and then she took and ate. Do you remember what Jesus commands His disciples when He's giving the Lord's Supper, take, eat. And that's what we get to do. And that's what we get to do. We get to celebrate the one who has won the victory over our enemy. The one who has taken our shame upon himself and restored our relationship with God. That, that one who has, who has brought us back into fellowship with God by faith in Christ. And so, we come to the elements. And this is something that clearly you can tell by the way I'm talking about it. This is something for Christians to do. We who have realized our plight, we who have recognized ourselves in this passage, 
that we're, we're Adam and Eve. We're the sinners in this passage. And thus, we have need. That relationship we, we, we have come to recognize between us and God has been broken by our sin. We deserve the full wrath and consequences from God. We deserve to be killed by that angel holding the sword. But we've also recognized the Redeemer that is promised even in this passage. We recognize Jesus, our Lord, that He is the one who has won these victories for us. And He's the only one who could do so. And He's the only one that, that, that gives us hope, that gives us life, that gives us victory. Because Jesus has done that battle. Jesus has taken that shame upon Himself. And He has restored our relationship with God in Christ. And so we get to celebrate this. And so if you don't know Christ, if you're uh, maybe, maybe confused by this topic, maybe you've never really thought about it, uh, maybe uh, you're unsure, don't, don't partake of the elements, but, but listen to what's being said. And then come talk to me afterward. I would love to talk to you about this. But Christian, this is for us to celebrate what has been done for us in Christ. And so as we go into this time, we want to do a couple of things. We're going to take a time of quiet reflection. I want us to, 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 to do a couple of things. First of all, we need to recognize again our own sin. Because Christian, we didn't just sin sometime in the past. Yeah, that one time. Or long ago in you know, deep, dark recesses of my history, I had sin. No, you have sin now that you need to deal with. So confess that to God. And what do you find when you confess your sin to God? That if you are in Christ, it's forgiven. And you have fresh reason to rejoice and to celebrate Jesus. And so let's take just a few moments now and confess our sins. And then let's take a few moments and express the joy that we have a Redeemer who has paid the penalty for those sins, restoring us in relationship to God. So let's, let's spend uh, some time in contemplation and confession. Father, we confess that we have sinned in our own various ways, in our own personal ways. We have sinned. And so we confess that to you. And we rejoice that in Christ we have payment made for those sins, that we have in Christ His righteous record credited to our account so that we stand before you by faith in Christ, fully at peace with you, fully righteous in you, sins washed away and righteousness credited. We rejoice in Jesus, our Savior. We pray in His name. Amen. First, we come to the bread. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread. and When He had given thanks, He broke it. And He said, this is my body, which is for you. Father, we are so grateful for the body of Jesus offered for us, that He gave Himself in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. We rejoice in Jesus, and we pray in His name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we come to the cup. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Father, we are so grateful for the blood of Christ given for us, establishing the new covenant, whereby the righteousness of Christ is given to us, credited to us, whereby we are given new hearts. We are made at peace with you. We are made spiritually alive because of what Christ has accomplished, and it's ours by faith. And we rejoice in Jesus, and we pray in His name. Paul continues, Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. What a joy to be able to work our way from such a dark passage to the bright joy of Jesus our Savior and to celebrate Him together in the Lord's Supper. I want to close this in prayer and after I'm uh, done praying. There will be a family up here who would love to pray with you. Um, the kids are going to go over here to check their blast zone in just a moment. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, thank you again for Jesus, our Savior, because we recognize ourselves in this passage in Genesis chapter 3, and we, we recognize that though we were not the first to sin, yet we followed suit, and we rejoice in the fact that you sent your Son to take upon himself the, the task of obeying where we have disobeyed, and, and, and even more importantly, where Adam has disobeyed, and took upon Himself, did Jesus, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. That in Him we have new life. In Christ we have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Your beloved Son. And we rejoice in that fact and we pray for Your blessing. As we go out this week, as we go about our, our days and our times with our family, as we are alone, as we are with others, we pray that you would send us out with this message and the joy that it brings and a desire to share it with others and direct one another to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You're dismissed.